My text today is from 1 John chapter 4. As we continue from the passage which we left off from last Lord's Day, I will read the first three verses. 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come. And even now already is it in the world. As we continue our study through 1 John, we proceed this Lord's Day from where we left off last Lord's Day. And you will recall, we began considering the question last Lord's Day, how do you know that you love the truth? You see, the importance of this question cannot be overlooked inasmuch as love for God's truth is one of the three tests by which a Christian is assured by the Spirit in his conscience that he is a Christian. Those three tests, again, very briefly, given by John in this epistle, are these. Love of a holy life. The second test, love for the brethren. And the third test, love for the truth. Those three tests we are to use in our own life to assure our own conscience before God that we are in fact his, that we belong to him. Although such tests of assurance have been misunderstood by some to border on legalism, we have tried through this series to make it absolutely clear that these three tests are not works of righteousness which we perform in order to be justified before God. There is... No righteousness which God will receive as the grounds for justification except the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And if our righteousness, dear ones, could in fact move God to look upon us with favor, then I declare that Jesus Christ lived and died in vain. He didn't need to come and to live a holy life. He didn't need to come and to die as a substitute in our place because we ourselves could offer to God our own works of righteousness. Such a thought, dear ones, is blasphemy against the Lord himself. No, these three tests speak not directly to our justification, how we are justified, but rather to our assurance our assurance of having been justified. They speak not of 
faith before God. They speak of the result and the fruit of our faith. You see, John, in effect, declares it's not by mystical experiences, the mystical experiences of the Gnostic false teachers in this epistle. It is not by those by which you will be assured of your salvation before God. John says it is by the observable fruit of faith in your life, produced by the Holy Spirit, testified to by the Holy Spirit in your conscience. You remember that Paul likewise commands Christians in 2 Corinthians 13.5. He says, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. And so this is a command to examine, to test yourselves. And so what we're looking at this Lord's Day is what do we use by which to test not only ourselves, but what do we use to test those who come proclaiming to us that they are speaking on behalf of the Spirit of God. Some may find, it's been my experience, uh, personally, uh, in my own life, but it's also been my experience in talking with others that some find these tests frightening, threatening, and even unnerving. Some may refuse to apply these tests because they fear the results, that they might find out that they don't have much grounds for assurance because there isn't any fruit in their lives. However, dear ones, because you come up short, and I would give you this caution, because you come up short in any of these tests, John did not give these tests in order to give to you conclusive evidence that if you should come up short, that you're not therefore converted nor justified. He gave these tests so that you might be rather assured of your salvation before God. I doubt that when David was living in that period of a year where he was separated from God, having committed adultery, having committed murder, that he had a whole lot of grounds of assurance before God. God probably was a million miles away in David's thoughts and, and mind. He was suffering under the oppressive hand of God. Had David applied perhaps those particular tests at that time, though we have no specific uh, uh, text to confirm this, uh, David may as well have fled, saying, in effect, I don't have assurance before God. You see, the results of these tests should make a Christian, it should drive the Christian out of his complacency if he has become complacent in his Christian life. If he has fallen into a backslidden condition, these tests should drive him to the mercy seat of Christ to assure his heart before the Lord. And I also, before we press on, want to simply say this. That we should always remember that no Christian, as they evaluate themselves according to these three tests, receives a perfect score anyway. No Christian comes up 
100%. All Christians fall short of that goal. We will not know that type of a score until we stand before God in his very presence. And so this is a process of sanctification that we are passing through. We are all growing in conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ in these areas. But I do declare to you that God says these are assurances. These are tests for the assurance of our salvation. And thus we should use these frequently in our own lives. The first main point that I would have you consider today is just review. Very quickly, review from the sermon last Lord's Day to bring us up to speed with regard to the text we will be considering this Lord's Day. And we asked that question last Lord's Day. How do you know that you love the truth? Well, first, last Lord's Day, we considered this because... You test all those who say they are teachers of God's word. You put them to the test. In 1 John 4, 1, John says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. You see, you are given here not simply the those who are teachers within the congregation, not simply the elders of the congregation, but all Christians are commanded in this particular verse to do two things. It's not an option. It is a command to all Christians. First of all, you are commanded, believe not every spirit. Don't be gullible. Don't swallow everything that you hear, whether from this pulpit, whether from my lips or from any of the elders in our congregation. Don't simply swallow what we give to you or any other teacher or any creed. Don't simply implicitly swallow everything you hear. That's the first thing that John says. Second, he says to all Christians, try the spirits, whether they are of God. Test all of those coming to you who claim to speak on behalf of the Spirit of God. Uh, uh, test them. Evaluate. Examine what they say. Why should you do so? John says, into that verse, because there are many. Notice the word many. There are not a few. But there are many false prophets who have gone out into the world. You see, here is a warning from the Lord to you, his people. Be on the alert for false teachers abound in the world. False teachers that he's talking about are not those who are outside of the church. False teachers he's talking about are identified with the church. Be on your, uh, on your guards. Look out. Be alert. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, even as he warns the young evangelist Timothy concerning this very same danger. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Timothy verses, chapter 4, verses 2-4, through 4, he says to Timothy, Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, 
Exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Notice, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Now, the warning, dear ones, concerning such false teachers does not mean you should avoid all teachers, that you should never submit to any teacher. For we have also the word of God from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 17, where we find this word. Remember them which have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy, not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And so we find in the scripture, you are to avoid all false teachers. Don't follow them. Don't listen to them. But at the same time, the Apostle Paul is not saying that all teachers are false teachers. There are faithful teachers that Christ has given to the church. Them you are to hear. Them you are to listen to. Them you are to submit yourselves to. In the Lord. And only in the Lord. Well, having considered the command in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, last week, that command to test teachers, let us now turn our attention to the subject of this message, and that is to the content of the test. Test the teachers last Lord's Day. If you truly love the truth, you'll not only test teachers, but secondly, you'll test them with specific content in mind. And so the second main point today is <clears throat> in answer to the question, how do you know that you love the truth? You test the doctrine. You test the doctrine of the teachers. The Apostle John says, in verses 2 and 3, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. <clears throat> The Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry again warned us concerning false teachers and he said you will know them by their fruit. The fruit by which you know false teachers is specifically the doctrine they teach and we might add in addition to that the life that they live. But specifically the doctrine that they teach. And that is what is emphasized by John here in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. 
And so again, I say, whether it be myself or whether it be any other person claiming to be a teacher, you are commanded to test the doctrine and the life of those who claim to be teachers and not to be misled. You see, one of the tests of the sheep is, according to Jesus in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They follow those who are true shepherds. They follow those who are faithful pastors and teachers who lead the shepherd or lead the sheep in the paths of righteousness. Consider a couple passages in which the Apostle Paul again exhorts this same young evangelist Timothy to look to the life, character, marriage and doctrine of those who would teach in the church. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and 5, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, wholesome words, that's the same idea as sound doctrine. If he consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, before he left the earth, commanded us, his ministers, specifically the apostles, but those apostles have given this ministry, passed this ministry on to others as well, called to serve in the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus commanded them to teach all that I command you. Everything that I have commanded you, all the words of Jesus Christ, we are to proclaim. And they, these are these wholesome words. And so the Apostle Paul says to Timothy to if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. You see, you can't simply preach the truth and have no doctrine that's according to godliness. Truth and holiness and love for the brethren go hand in hand. You do not separate those one from the other. And so one who is faithful in proclaiming the truth should as well be faithful in the way he lives. Not a perfect life. We're not talking about uh, angelic beings walking around here upon the earth or preaching from the pulpit. We are sinners saved by grace. But by God's grace, ministers should be evidencing a greater degree of sanctification in their life than perhaps any should be in the rest of the congregation. There should be that kind of life lived as a pattern before the congregation. The Apostle Paul also says in 2 Timothy 1.13 to, to Timothy, he says, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Notice again how he merges together doctrine and life. Doctrine and life. Sound words in faith and love. And you can look over the qualifications for an overseer in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 as well. Dear ones, it is so easy to give this responsibility of evaluating a teacher passing the buck on to someone else. I'll let so-and-so evaluate that teacher for me. 
I don't feel very qualified to do so. So I'll let him do so. Dear ones, realize again, God commands all believers to evaluate, to have the ability to grow in their discernment, to know the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. We cannot, even wives, you cannot even pass that off on your husbands alone. Though your husband has a responsibility before God to lead the family. Nevertheless, wives, realize that you are responsible to test and to evaluate as well. But if you're going to do so, it requires diligence and faithfulness on your parts if you will not be misled. Now, before we consider very specifically the content in verses 2 or 3, 2 and 3 of 1 John chapter 4, I would have you look at several items that you should not use in evaluating teachers. Before I give to you the content of that which you should use in evaluating teachers, these are the things I would place before you that you should not use. These should not be at the top of your list when you're trying to determine whether such and such a person is a true teacher, a faithful teacher, or a false or unfaithful teacher. First of all, the size of the teacher's congregation is not something that you should primarily look at. You could go to either a true or a false teacher and prove whatever you wanted from the size of the congregation. That is not what you should primarily look at. Secondly, the personality of the teacher. Some people are attracted to one kind of personality. Others are attracted to another kind of personality. Some people are attracted to a very charismatic type of individual. Others like a more low-keyed, laid-back type of personality. That's not at the top of the list as far as determining whether one is a teacher, a true or a false teacher. Thirdly, the academic degrees behind the teacher's name. How many PhDs or THDs or masters that he has behind his name is not a test that you should use in evaluating whether one is a faithful teacher or not. Many, many have been deluded by their own wisdom and knowledge. Many who are very simple, who have been raised in a sound Christian home, I, 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 I say very assuredly, many like that know more about gospel truth and about the knowledge of God than many who have degrees behind their name. Fourthly, the communication skills of the teacher. Again, people can be wowed, awe, in wonder at the communication skills of certain teachers and be drawn into, at times, even error. Because good communication skills are not necessarily the property of only true teachers. 
In fact, it may be the case that sometimes you find false teachers who are much more dynamic, much more capable at communicating what they believe. But that's not the basis upon which you decide whether one is true or false. Fifthly, the sincerity of the teacher. There is a way which seems right unto a man, but the ways thereof are the ways of death. So says Solomon in the Proverbs. Mere sincerity is not a test by which you should judge whether one is true or false. There are many, many people who are sincerely wrong. Don't follow one simply because the way he speaks, he speaks with conviction. Yes, true teachers should speak with conviction. But you know, many false teachers speak with the same kind of conviction. That alone is not a test. Sixthly, you should not determine whether one is a true teacher or a false teacher on the basis of that teacher's spiritual experiences. He may declare all kinds of things about experiences he's had with God, uh, even miraculous types of abilities and signs and wonders and, and this type of thing. But it is not on that basis that you determine, again, whether one is true or false. Satan appears as an angel of light. As apostles, he sends forth his apostles of wickedness to deceive and to delude by lying wonders. Seventh, you should not evaluate a true or a false teacher upon that teacher's appearance. How he looks in the pulpit, how he dresses, that's not the basis. I don't think that John the Baptist or Elijah would probably have won too many uh, fashion magazines, uh, most fashionable uh, dressed men in that day and age. You know, they were long, shaggy hair, perhaps. Uh, they were, uh, at least in John the Baptist's case, was a Nazarite. Uh, a straggly beard, most likely. Uh, Ate locusts, wild honey, a leather, uh, a belt, camel's hair. That's what he wore. So he wasn't the most fashionable person, but he proclaimed the truth. And so do not judge whether one is true or false based upon fashion. And finally... Don't base whether one is true or false upon the number of ministries, how popular he is, and how many radio ministries or TV ministries, how many books he's written, how many articles he's published. Those types of things are immaterial when it comes to the truth. So leaving the things now that you should not consider as you evaluate those who are true and false teachers, let us consider what John has to say as the primary standard that you should use in judging and testing teachers. And it is this. 
the teacher's doctrine. What he confesses to be true. This is what you should consider of the highest preeminence. What he believes about God. What he believes about his duties to God and his duties to his fellow man. Is the teacher's doctrine from God or is it from man? And as we consider this point, I have several subpoints. And as I move from one to the next, I'll, if you're trying to follow somewhat of an outline in your notes, I'll, I'll certainly uh, uh, help you along. And so, first of all, I would point out, as we consider the teacher's doctrine as being the primary standard that you should use in judging teachers, first of all, <clears throat> Just as God warned his people of old in Deuteronomy 13.1 that they were not to follow a prophet who, though performing a sign or wonder that came to pass, such as predicting a future event, but did not teach according to God's will, such a man they were not to follow, even if he did perform a sign and a wonder. If he did not proclaim, if his doctrine did not measure up to God's revealed will, then you were not to follow him. Not to listen to him. The Lord explicitly says in such cases that he sends such a prophet into your midst to test you, to see whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. It is a test. Will you be deluded and deceived by following simply a sign and a wonder or anything else that I have mentioned earlier? Or will you listen to the doctrine that comes forth? Christ and the Apostle Paul both warn Believers not to be misled by even the miraculous gifts that some teachers may exhibit. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, speaking of the man of sin, which in this context specifically refers to the papacy, although what is said here about the papacy is not necessarily limited to the papacy. It can refer to other types of spiritual antichrist as well. But it says in this particular passage concerning that man of sin, even him whose coming is after the work of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, because they did not receive the love of the truth, but rather were deluded by the signs, by the, by the flashy ministry, whatever it is, because they were deluded by that man, it says, and for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, 
but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The second main or the second sub point here. Consider John's application of the test of doctrine to his very specific situation. We've talked about this many times as we've gone through the epistle of First John, but here were Gnostic false teachers in the churches in, a, uh, in Asia. They were denying the incarnation of the Son of God. Why did they deny the incarnation of the Son of God? Because they believed all matter, all material substance was evil in and of itself. Anything that was physical, material, the Gnostics believed to be evil. And therefore, they believed the flesh to be evil. And therefore, they concluded, how could the Son of God become a man and take on flesh? Flesh is evil. He must not, therefore, have had a true human body. It was that which simply appeared to be a human body. And so, by so doing, by denying that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, what they ended up denying, in effect, was the humanity of Christ. The full and complete humanity of Christ. And they denied, therefore, that he fulfilled all righteousness as a man on our behalf. They also denied that he was our substitute on the cross. Because if he was not a man, he could not be our substitute. And so he could not die for us. In other words, all these, although these false teachers confessed belief in Jesus Christ, they believed him to be Savior. They believed him to be the Word of God. They nevertheless denied Christ by the heresy they confessed. You see, they would not have denied that Christ was the Son of God. They would not have denied that he was divine. But they undermined the very truth concerning Christ by a consequent doctrine. And they attacked, therefore, the nature, the very nature of Christ, when they denied that all flesh is evil. Let me paint this little picture for you when we're talking about doctrine. You see, the scripture is like a beautiful tapestry of doctrine, teachings from beginning to end, interwoven and connected one to the other. And as you look at this tapestry of the scriptural doctrine, it's beautiful. One doctrine confirms the other. One doctrine is built upon the other. It's all systematically interwoven and connected as one system of truth. And though one may not directly remove in that tapestry that which is most conspicuous and most prominent, if he begins to pull one thread from that tapestry that appears to be less conspicuous and less prominent, he will eventually, as he continues to pull, undo the more conspicuous and prominent doctrines as well. Because you see, dear ones, the authority of God that teaches the greater commandments is the same authority of God that teaches the so-called lesser commandments. 
the authority of God that teaches the so-called primary doctrines is the same authority that teaches the so-called secondary doctrines. And when you begin to whittle away the so-called secondary doctrines, you will eventually undermine the very authority that upholds the primary doctrines, which is the authority of God himself. Because it is a connected system of truth. The third sub-point. John says, in effect... In these two verses, in 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3, he says, in effect, in the present doctrinal crisis through which we are passing in the churches of Asia, talking about the Gnostic heresies that that are prevalent in these churches, John says here, this is how you know whether a teacher is speaking by the Spirit of God. Every teacher who confesses the incarnation of Christ is of God. And every teacher that denies the incarnation of Christ is of the spirit of Antichrist. It's particularly significant that John, in these verses, has left for the church and for all Christians, a pattern to follow in regard to the need for confessions and creeds. When the churches of Asia faced false teachers who would lead them away from the truth, he established a faithful confessional statement that refuted the doctrinal heresy. He simply said, Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Now, you won't find, I don't think, that explicit statement found in the Gospels. But John, taking what he knows about the Lord, and certainly under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, frames a confessional statement that can be used with the false teachers living at that time. Do you confess... Do you confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh? That Jesus Christ has been incarnated, made man? Do you confess that or do you deny that? That was the doctrinal test that was given to these Gnostic false teachers. And likewise, when the doctrine of Christ's deity was attacked in the fourth century, the church gathered at the Council of Nicaea in order to provide a faithful confessional statement that could be used by the churches and could be used by fellow Christians in order to discern whether a teacher was orthodox or not. The same is true of the Synod of Dort. Godly, faithful, and learned men gathered together who knew the scriptures. And they met over extended periods of time to to debate and to discuss the issue of salvation. To discuss the issue of whether or not it is man who is primarily responsible 
for his choosing Christ, or whether it is in fact God who from all eternity has elected man to himself, whether it is man who has the ability to follow Christ, to believe in Christ, or whether it is God who must give him the ability to do so, whether it is man who causes himself to persevere in the faith, or whether it is God who gives him the ability to persevere in the faith, and whether Christ came to die for all men universally, or whether Christ came to die specifically for those whom God had given him to save, those whom he had chosen from eternity. You see, these were hammered out facing the heresy of Arminianism in that particular synod. And the same thing can be said with regard to the Westminster Assembly. These divines, these, these uh, learned and godly men gathered together as a council to determine truths related to the scripture and to defend the truth against heresy. You see, although the heresy that is introduced by false teachers may change from age to age, nevertheless, the need to test teachers by confessional statements that are agreeable to the word of God has not changed. We still need to do what John did because there is still heresy present. And it takes on a different face in every age, puts on a different costume, but many of the heresies remain the same. And God has given to the church faithful teachers, pastors, not perfect, not infallible, but faithful, who can take the word of God and together they can frame confessional statements that protect and defend the truth and, and, and evidence and show forth what is heresy. In this process, always, 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 the word of God is our only infallible rule of faith and practice. The word of God is always our primary standard in evaluating teachers. However, subordinate confessional standards and statements are to be used to test teachers because they are agreeable to the word of God. The fifth subpoint that I'd make concerning verses 2 and 3 is this. One of the first areas in which a teacher should be tested is specifically in the area of Christ's nature, person, offices, and works. There is nothing, dear ones, more fundamental to the Christian faith than these truths concerning Christ. The word of God and faithful creeds have condemned false teachers who deny the true humanity of Christ, like the Gnostics. The word of God and faithful creeds have condemned false teachers who have denied the true deity of Christ, like the Arians, the Socinians, and the Jehovah Witnesses. The word of God and faithful creeds have condemned false teachers who have denied the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ, like the oneness churches. The word of God and faithful creeds have condemned false teachers who have denied the particular atonement of Jesus Christ, like the Arminians. 
And the word of God and faithful creeds have condemned false teachers who have denied the sufficiency of Christ's death like the papists who continue to re-crucify Christ every time the Mass is observed, who downplay the intercessory work of the Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest by having angels and priests or saints in heaven who intercede for us. Jesus Christ and His work becomes insufficient rather than alone sufficient. And finally, the word of God and faithful creeds have condemned false teachers who have denied the present kingly rule of Christ like the dispensationalists. In each case, as you read through the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 8 concerning Christ being our mediator, you will find statements that defend the orthodox teaching of Christ against all such heresies, all false teachers. Sixthly, however, the doctrine of Christ, though that is what specifically John is stating in 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3, we ought not to simply limit confessional statements to the doctrine of Christ in combating heresy. This was simply one area which the Gnostics attacked and which John defended by his faithful confessional statement. But that's not the only area in which we can use faithful confessional statements in which to defend the truth and expose heresy. Wherever and whenever heresy attacks the truth revealed by God's Holy Spirit and found in the Word of God at that very point, those who love the truth should take their stand to defend it at the cost of even their own life. And seventh, Dear ones, if we are to identify false teachers and their heresies, we must know what a heresy is and what it is not. So many Christians, I believe, are confused at this very point. They think in terms of heresy as being only in one category, damnable heresy. In other words, they believe that all heresy is damnable heresy, and only damnable heresy is heresy. Only heresy that attacks the very foundation of our faith in Christ and undermines that foundation. Doctrines, for example, these would be foundational doctrines that many, many Christians would see as all that heresy uh, encompasses. These kinds of foundational truths of the Word of God, the sinfulness of man, the deity and humanity of Christ, the Trinity, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, the inspiration of the Scripture. See, many Christians would see those as being heresies, and rightfully so, and being damnable heresies, and rightly so. But you see, many Christians fail to recognize that that's not the only category of heresies. I would hope you might see before the end of the sermon, 
that there is such a category which I designate as destructive heresy, which does not necessarily attack the foundation directly, as damnable heresy does, but rather indirectly it may do so. And thus is likewise to be avoided and shunned in all churches and also is to be shunned in all teachers promoting these heresies. So, what is heresy? If you want a more complete description of this, I urge you to read from George Gillespie in chapter 9 of his Miscellany Questions. And I'm trying, I'm trying to summarize in a very brief space what he has elaborated on there in a much broader space, but I think that he has hit the nail on the head here. And so we're going to look at what heresy is. First of all, heresy is not to be extended to every error contrary to the word of God. Not every error that is contrary to the word of God is classified as a heresy. That's the first thing that you need to keep in mind. Although every error contrary to the word of God is sin, and it ought to be avoided, not every error is heresy. And we shall soon see why that is the case. Thus, because a teacher upholds and defends an error contrary to the word of God does not necessarily make him a heretic or a false teacher. Second, however, heresy is not to be so restricted that no error is considered to be heresy until it directly attacks some fundamental Christian doctrine. We're not to go to the opposite extreme either. That until somebody attacks the doctrine of the Trinity, we don't, until they do that, we do not consider them before then to be committed to heresy or to be a heretic. Thirdly, heresy is an error that is held by either a teacher or member and associates himself with the church. In 1 Corinthians 11:19. Paul says, for there must be also heresies among you. Do not think of heretics as being those who are out there. Paul says heresies are among you. In other words, one is a heretic who is identified with the church in some capacity. He's not a rank pagan. He's not an atheist. He's not an infidel. A heretic is one who identifies himself with the church. Fourthly, heresy is an error voluntarily chosen and promoted inasmuch as the very word in Greek is derived from the verb meaning I choose. The word for heresy, the verb from which that comes in Greek means I choose. Error is voluntarily exchanged for the truth by one who embraces heresy. Thus, one is not strictly an heretic who denies the faith. 
under persecution or pressure from others. If one is compelled in order to save his life to make a certain profession contrary to the truth, that's sin and he shouldn't do so. That's error. He has sinned against God, but he is not by that alone considered to be a heretic because he has not voluntarily chosen and promoted that particular error. You see, Peter denied the Lord, but Peter was not a heretic for he did not voluntarily promote and adopt that error. Fifthly, heresy is an error contradictory of some chief and substantial truth. It may not be attacking directly the foundation of the faith. However, heresy is an error contradictory of some chief and substantial truth. And here, I believe, Gillespie rightly understands a chief and substantial truth to be one which is confessed within a faithful creed of a Reformed church. Identifying what Gillespie means by a substantial truth, he notes this, and I quote, I do not mean only the first rudiments or ABC of a catechism, which we first of all put to new beginners. But I mean all such truths as are commonly put in the confessions of faith and in the more full and large catechisms of the Reformed churches. To attack those truths, to deny those truths, Mr. Gillespie says, is to depart from a substantial truth of the Christian faith and to embrace a heresy. Our Reformed forefathers understood, therefore, heresy to be, de- to be a denial of confessed truths in the Reformed churches of the First and Second Reformations. Not just because these truths were, were uh, given by Reformed churches, but because they believe these truths and these confessional standards to be agreeable to the Word of God. And so, therefore, to reject these truths and these confessions was to, uh, was to deny those truths, which all of the Reformed churches at that time said, these are truths that are taught in the Word of God. These are substantial truths. Thus, those who would deny, and let me give, therefore, some examples for you that are found in our Reformed standards, and therefore, from which to depart is to embrace a heresy, therefore. Those who would deny, it is the magistrate's duty to remove all monuments to idolatry and false religion, within that nation by establishing, protecting, and promoting the true Reformed Church as the only church of that nation have departed from the Reformed faith, have embraced the heresy. Or those who would deny the perpetual obligation to sanctify the Lord's day, that it be kept holy, 
have departed from the faith of their forefathers. The biblical faith expressed within these faithful confessions and creeds. Or those who would deny that all other holy days have been abrogated in the new covenant like Christmas and Easter. One holy day left, the Sabbath, according to God's word. No other holy day established in the new covenant. All holy days, therefore, having been abrogated, have departed from the faith of the forefathers, from this biblical religion. Are those who deny that pictures of God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit ought not to be made or used in any way to affirm that it's okay to use pictures of Christ, representations of Christ or the Holy Spirit in any form. Faithful confessions and creeds have taught any representation based upon what God has said in the Ten Commandments is a violation of what God has revealed. It's depart from the faith. For those who deny the perpetual obligation of covenants sworn on behalf of their posterity, this is revealed in Scripture and by all of our Reformed churches. Or those who deny that baptism ought to be applied to the infant children of believers have departed from the faith revealed in Scripture. Or those who deny that only inspired songs should be used in worship without the accompaniment of musical instruments have departed from the faith. All those who deny such biblical truths confessed and affirmed by the unified testimony of Reformed churches have departed from, the, from that common faith, hammered out against the heresies and the false teachers of that age and in our age. And finally, heresy is an error divisively maintained and one which rends separates the unity of the church. Thus, one may hold a private error that is contrary to the truths of Scripture confessed in the Westminster Confession of Faith without being a heretic. But when he publicly and scandalously promotes and defends his error and leads others away from the truth along with him, he is then to be viewed as a heretic. Let it be carefully noted at this point that not every division within a religious body is to be counted a schism, a sinful division. Are they schismatics who depart from an unfaithful body for the sake of maintaining a faithful testimony to the truth as found in the Westminster Confession of Faith and other documents emitted by the Westminster Assembly? Are they the schismatics? Who are really the schismatics, the larger body that defected from the biblical truth contained in these subordinate standards, or the smaller body that leaves the backslidden church in order that it might return to the biblical faith confessed in those faithful creeds and confessions of the Reformed churches? 
John Calvin in his commentary in John 10:19 says this. Thus the wickedness of many is still the reason why the church is troubled by divisions and why contentions are kindled. Yet those who disturb the peace throw the blame on us and call us schismatics. For the principal charge which the papists bring against us is that our doctrine has shaken the tranquility of the church. Yet the truth is that if they would yield submissively to Christ and give their support to the truth, all the commotions would immediately be allayed. Again, Calvin, from his commentary on John 9:16, says, A schism is a highly pernicious and destructive evil in the church of God. And how comes it then that Christ sows the occasion of discord among the very teachers of the church? The answer is easy. Christ had no other object in view than to bring all men to God the Father by stretching out his hand to them. The division, notice carefully, the division arose from the obstinate malice of those who had no disposition to go to God. All who do not yield obedience to the truth of God rend the church by schism. Yet it is better that men should differ among themselves than that they should all with one consent revolt from the true religion. Wherefore, whenever differences arise, we ought always to consider their source. Do they, does the division come from those who are departing from the truth? Or does the division come from those who are seeking to return to the truth? From the Acts of General Assembly of the Church of Scotland... These words, whoever brings in an opinion or practice in this Kirk, that is church, contrary to the confession of faith, directory of worship or Presbyterian government may be justly esteemed to be opening the door to schism and sects. To depart from these standards is to open the door to schism and sects. And finally, one last quote from Andrew Symington in his introductory lecture in the book entitled The Principles of the Second Reformation. He says, it has been justly said and will be admitted as a general principle when the prevailing part of a church make any addition to or alteration of the scripture system of faith, worship, discipline or government and essential condition of fellowship with them. In this case, the prevailing party are the real separatists and they who are obliged to, re to withdraw from their communion rather than sin are the true adherents to the church, cleaving to her constitutional laws. Schism an evil of no small magnitude, a reproach often cast upon the few, is not to be tried by arithmetic. It is not a question of numbers, or it were easily settled, but it is a question of truth and of principle. Dear ones, in conclusion today, the content which should be used in determining and judging teachers is the word of God supremely. 
But subordinately, it is the faithful and biblical confessions of faith handed down to us, tried and proven and hammered out by assemblies, faithful assemblies and churches through the ages. I am not teaching that all those who have departed from these faithful standards of the Reformed churches have fallen to the same degree or to the same extent from the truth. I am not accusing all of those who are guilty of a destructive heresy as being guilty of a damnable heresy. I am not insinuating that those who may be considered in this light false teachers because they have departed from the standards of faithful churches, reformed churches of the past. I am not saying that they are not believers or Christians. I am not saying that they don't maintain much truth in what they proclaim and teach. Yet, I am not saying that such churches do not have many precious sons of God within them whom we love in Christ. I am not suggesting that we should not pray for these dear brethren who have departed from the faith and who are not maintaining a faithful testimony to the truth. We should be on our knees praying continuously that God would grant repentance to these brethren, that God would keep us from pride and arrogance, that God would look upon his church, which is broken, which is filled with heresy throughout the world, and have mercy upon her and heal her many diseases and restore and rebuild the breaches in her walls again. Because we love Christ's church, dear ones, and though she may be infected with such heresies, and though we love the ministry of Jesus Christ, and though we love the ordinances of Christ, we cannot condone and countenance the corruption of his church, of his ordinances, of his doctrines, of the ministry by the doctrines and the commandments of men. Our attitude, dear ones, should be that of weeping and mourning as we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for the reconciliation of the church of Jesus Christ. Our attitude should be that of the psalmist in Psalm 147, verses 1 through 6. Israel, in this psalm, is in captivity. And the psalmist longs for the pure ordinances of, of God, longs for the ministry of God in the temple and in the tabernacle, longs to be in that place where, again, he can enjoy that precious worship with God's people. 
And with that longing in mind, he says this. I said, well, Psalm 147, it's Psalm 137, verses 1 through 7. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they carried us away captive, required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it even to the foundation. Is that your attitude? Is that your heart's cry? Is that your plea before the Lord that God would restore the glory of his church, the splendor of his church, make it visible throughout the whole world. It will come, dear ones, through the faithfulness of labors, ministers, preaching, proclaiming, administering the ordinances of Jesus Christ. God, help us. It is such who have this attitude Expressed by the psalmist in Psalm 137, it is such who love the truth and assure their hearts before God. Let us stand in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, our hearts indeed are broken. As we look around us and as we observe thy church and the turmoil that she is in. Father, it is our heart's desire and our cry that thou would restore again the glory of thy church. That thou would preserve thy faithful ordinances, thy doctrines. That, O God, thou would raise up men who would defend the truth against error. We pray, O God, that thou would give to us warriors, faithful ministers, faithful teachers to promote the doctrine of Christ. O Father, we do pray that thou would grant repentance to us for our sin in many areas, O Lord, for our pride and arrogancy. Father, forgive us for our waywardness. For the, for the years in which we walked in darkness, for the years that we have walked, Lord, contrary to thy law, remember against us, Lord, not the sins of our youth. O Father, we pray that thou would grant to many brothers and sisters, to many loved ones in other churches, the grace to own thy covenants, the grace to own faithful and biblical confessions of faith. 
We pray, Father, that thou would restore thy church to uniformity in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. And that the grace of God would fill the whole earth. And that in all nations, the Lord's name would be one. And that the knowledge of God would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that all nations would come to Jerusalem. And that kings and and princes would be nursing fathers to thy church to promote and defend her. We ask our God that thou would hear our prayer. For we pray according even to our Lord Jesus Christ. Whom the second psalm teaches all nations, all leaders are to kiss. We pray, Father, that Thou would bless, that Thou would give us encouragement, give us the grace to be able to judge such matters as to who are faithful teachers of the truth and who have defected from the truth. That we might know Thy voice and Thy shepherds and might follow them. For we ask all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, 
and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.